1: I mean, my favorite scene in the show is probably Violet talking to Daphne about sex. It's so awkward. I love how awkward it is.
2: There are some things you ought to know. If it is this difficult to discuss, how difficult must it be to perform? It is not dearest, it is most natural, much in the way that rain soaks a field in autumn
1: and in spring flowers grow. Gab, is this what your sex talk was like? Is this how the birds and the bees talk
4: went for you? Welcome to Bridgerton, the official podcast, where we're going behind the scenes of Bridgerton. I'm Gabrielle Collins. Hello, Jess
1: Brownell here. On this episode, we're gonna be talking about sex. I imagine for a lot of people, it's a shock when, oh, it's still going. (laughs) Oh, and it's still going five minutes later, or in the case of episode six, 20 minutes later. (laughs) Right,
4: you've posted the sorry, not sorry, I can't look away from this sex montage memes. You've seen the What is a Penis spoofs, spicy TikTok musicals, and some of us have even indulged in soaking the field in autumn a little early.
1: Gab, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to go through a thunderstorm without thinking about sex now.
4: Is that weird? In in this episode, we're going to look at how Bridgerton got all of our minds in the fanciest of gutters.
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, I had that experience when I first read the books. I actually listened to them on uh, audio tape. And, you know, with romance novels, the first two-thirds of the book are pretty PG, especially with a Regency romance novel. It's flirty, uh, and there's some double entendre, but it's pretty pretty PG. And then all of a sudden, you're in very descriptive, well-written, when it's Julia Quinn, sex scenes. And it is. It's a little blushy.
4: It is. I kept laughing during some of the sex scenes because clearly I'm five years old. (laughs) But I also was intrigued by all that went into making it happen because it doesn't just happen on its own. These scenes are rehearsed, practiced over and over and over again. So we're going to be talking with intimacy coordinator Elizabeth Talbot. And we'll also talk to directors Tom Verica and Julianne Robinson about some of the sexiest scenes that they directed. You'll find some surprises within that. And of course, Jess, we're gonna be breaking down the storyful backdrops behind the sex and intimacy in Bridgerton, and all of those many layers and ways that you can slice and dice that. We should probably unpack sex and intimacy in Bridgerton starting with Daphne's education. After all, Jess did bring up the Violet Gives the sex talk scene. Jess, why is the sex talk scene your favorite scene? That's where it feels like it really reads you into the period. You're like, oh, wow, they really
1: didn't know anything about sex. And it gave me a lot of sympathy for Daphne to feel like these girls have the whole weight of the world placed on them, on their marriage choice, their marriage match, and they don't even know about the best part of
4: it. (laughs) So what it sounds like is all of the Regency restrictions the writers learned about came crashing against the final moment of what we know as Daphne's youth. That moment is loaded with storytelling. And it is, of course, why executive producer Shonda Rhimes also loved this scene for its performances and its backstory.
5: I don't know. I spend a lot of time thinking about all this stuff. I'm like, so, you know, Phoebe's yelling at her mother for not telling her more. And I'm like, nobody probably ever told Violet anything. Like Lady Bridgerton probably never knew, you know, much of anything at all. She didn't have any words to express what she was trying to tell her daughter. Having that talk like that, was probably like the boldest thing she'd ever done in her life, you know, in terms of that, way more than her mother ever did for her. And I thought that was fascinating. You know, when Violet tells off her son, when she puts those children in their place, she is interesting because you realize like, she's also not only been through a lot, but I mean, who has eight children and gets through it all, loses her husband and the children are resentful of her. Like that moment when Phoebe is upset with her mother for not telling her, you know, what she needed to know for her wedding night. It was very interesting.
4: What's so interesting about it is that it has nothing to do with the romance we associate with bodies blending into one. Shonda is hinting at something that is dynamically Shondaland, the buildup.
1: There were eight writers on season one. We were in a windowless room in Hollywood. We spent the first day, you know, with Chris talking us through his vision for the show, what he wanted for the tone, how he saw the episodes playing out. And I think there was this clear distinction from the beginning that we weren't doing a traditional period piece, that we wanted it to be sexy. We wanted it to be juicy.
4: So did you start by combing through the books line by line to extract some of this tone? When
1: we were writing the show, we realized that if we adapted the books directly and you know, it was all sweet and innocent for six episodes. And then suddenly in episode six or seven, they got married and there was all of that sex. It was going to be a little shocking. And so we wanted to carry the tone, the sort of sexy tone throughout the beginning episodes of the show, so it was about finding moments for Anthony and Sienna to be sneaking off, for Benedict to be observing things in the demi mond Yeah,
4: and that to me is the element of the buildup and the heightened stakes around love that Shondaland bakes into story. And Jess, you've been a writer and story editor with Shondaland for years, yeah. so you know. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that you know
1: Shonda and Shondaland in general part of the language of these shows is that longing that will they or won't they, you know, it was a Meredith, Derek thing. I think it's a Fitz and live thing. I think it's definitely a Simon and Daphne thing. And even though Fitz and live and Meredith and Derek are, you know, modern characters, if you look at those shows, there are moments where there's a lot of drawn out longing and the Regency setting made it all the easier
4: to really foreground that element. In the TV landscape, Shondaland has made its mark by shifting the way we see women in relationships and women in power.
5: To me, it feels very important that when we are telling story, that the women feel empowered, that the story makes the woman feel empowered, that the storyline for the character is empowered, and that the story that's being told has something to do with what we're seeing. Like, we are seeing this for a reason. We're not seeing this just because it sounded fun to the director or it sounded fun you know it was fun to the writer, like, ooh, we're telling a story because we're growing a character and we're taking them someplace
4: and there's a point. Shonda Rhimes is known for creating characters that elbowed their way into the space, bringing a roundness and a realness and a sexual healthiness to female characters on television. Like
5: I, I, Sometimes I'm like, this feels, it just doesn't have anything to do with the story. I don't know why this woman is naked, why they're making out this way. It doesn't have anything to do with the story that's being told. That feels gratuitous and there's no point to it.
1: I remember one day I was writing one of the sex scenes for the show. I was, you know, sitting in my office one evening in the dark room. And I was, a lot of our language that we use on the show is very colorful. Like in the action lines, some writers write very spare action lines, but our voice on the show was to, you know, really describe in detail, like what people are feeling and what they're doing. And so I'm sitting there and I realized I have written like a three page blow by blow no pun intended, of exactly what this sex scene is. And then I thought about Chris Van Dusen reading this. And I thought, if he's expecting me to say, and then they have sex and that's it. If he receives a three-page document where I'm describing like every moment their breath hovering, blah, 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 I'm going to be so embarrassed. And so I went in and had a chat with him in which I felt very much like Daphne talking to Violet about sex and asked him, was I supposed to be going really in depth for the scene? Like, how much detail do you want? And he was like, oh, I want detail.
4: <laughs> and so I went for it. And there are levels of going for it, right? There's diving into your characters, most private thoughts. And then there's the tease of courtship and barely there touches, right? Yeah, Non-sex, sure. but just as passionate scenes, like the dream sequence in the beginning of episode three. It's so sensual. So the
1: dream sequence in episode three came about because we were wanting to bring some thirst and sexiness into earlier episodes. You know, it was a good way to get inside Daphne's head and it was important for us to keep the the desire alive for the character and for the audience. You know, we we don't want you to have to wait necessarily till episode six or seven to see these two characters touching and holding each other. And because of Regency rules, you know, we had to find creative ways to get around that.
4: The rules were sexy. The rules are sexy. That anticipation, that thirst. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We really strived in every episode to find moments for Daphne and Simon to really be thirsting for each other. Thirst was a word that got used in the room a lot. You know, we wanted to keep in mind that this is a romance and it is a sexy story and finding the moments where their hands graze each other or where their breath stops or where she's having, you know, sexy dreams about him. It was very important to Chris and to all of us as writers to keep that alive throughout the series.
6: I find that incredibly seductive without being overtly obvious.
4: Tom Verica, he directed, in my opinion, the thirstiest of the episodes, and that's episode three. The way Tom puts it, stretching out that timeline of courtship was erotic.
6: One of my favorite scenes that I had directed was in episode three. I think it was a three page scene, and and there was a whole, a lot, there was this whole silent part that Chris had written out very specifically about what happens in that moment where their hands just about touch. So there was a very specific shot of just focusing on their hands. It's
1: this moment where, like, they're both thinking the same thing. of Did that really just happen? And are you feeling what I'm feeling? And they want to hold that look just one beat longer before they know they have to go in the other room. And I feel like so much is said in that look. It's a testament to how much actors bring to the story. You know, I mean, the way that they did it, I was just like, that is everything.
6: I remember I had them facing in different directions because they clearly wanted to be near each other. But how do we get to that point?
4: I was wondering why you did that.
6: Yeah, that wasn't in the script. And I I really wanted to sort of earn when they do finally look at one another, the moment where they kind of look and take each other in, where he's impressed by her insight into something. And then she gets lost in the painting, but she's facing in one direction, looking at another painting, yet they're right next to each other.
1: The others are certainly very grand and impressive,
6: but
2: this one, this one is intimate.
6: I found that so sexy that there is the inevitable and there is that physical attraction, but we're playing against that until we really earn it. The DNA of that scene, I, I wanted palpable chemistry. And connection that they have as they kind of feel the heat from each other. But there was so much with the words and the chemistry that Regé and Phoebe brought to that, which I thought was just outstanding. And that chemistry is, I think, really gives the audience a lot of build up to what is eventually where they do come together. It was very fun playing that scene. I really enjoyed that scene a lot.
4: As Tom breaks down the anatomy of this defining moment in Daphne and Simon's friendship... I'm immediately reminded of a conversation I had with Kelly Valentine Hendry, the casting director.
2: So that was a very important scene
7: for me in the casting. And it's a real moment with Daphne and Simon where you see the connection. The two of them find themselves in a room by themselves. And Simon realizes, I think at that moment when he
1: properly falls in love with her,
7: I mean, obviously he falls
1: in love with her at love at first sight when they bump into each other on the dance floor, but that was the moment. And the two of their hands nearly touch. When we were casting that
2: scene, that was a real moment where we could tell if people had chemistry or not.
4: The chemistry that Kelly is talking about ripples throughout all of relationships in Bridgerton and is multiplied by the actors and actresses and creatives on the show. A hundred percent. The production did such an incredible job interpreting the scripts and
1: they you know brought an incredible amount to the story that we could not have even imagined. So there were months in between us finishing writing our scripts, and then months later me seeing it cut and going, oh my gosh, it's real. It was just an incredible effort, I think, this all-star cast and crew.
4: One of the dynamic members of the production is Lizzie Talbot. She was Bridgerton's intimacy coordinator and kind of the director of like the ballet of sensual expression on camera.
7: So, my first encounter with Bridgerton was an email I received um, asking to interview. So, I made the mistake of asking my mother to read the first Bridgerton book because I was away at the time and I'd forgotten my Kindle. And I said, oh, I rang my mum and said, oh, mum, can you just quickly read this book and just let me know what you think? I got a phone call a bit later saying, well, it's certainly going to be your type of job.
4: (laughs) When we come back from the break, we'll learn more about Lizzie Talbot and her role as intimacy coordinator on Bridgerton.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect,
4: Welcome back. Lizzie schooled me on intimacy coaching and best practices for an equitable and enjoyable experience on set. And I could give you a beautiful soliloquy introducing Lizzie and the importance of her role as an intimacy coach on Bridgerton. But I'll let executive producer Shonda Rhimes tell you.
5: I mean, I actually put out a memo to our actors that said, truly said, if you want to wear a snowsuit while you're doing your love scenes, then you will wear a snowsuit. That is fine. And it's up to the director to figure out how that's going to work, you know, prior to days before intimacy coordinators. But this particular show is a show that is basically about sex, which makes the idea that you're going to wear a snowsuit impossible. So to me, having an intimacy coordinator, which we have on all our shows, but having one on this show was vital. And having the right one was vital. And I feel like it was just without her, This I, I can't even imagine for the actors, for the director, for everybody, like what she does is such an important part of getting those scenes right and making those scenes as exciting as they were for the audience. That would not have happened without her
4: and her abilities. Here's Lizzie Talbot.
7: One of the things that was so different about Bridgerton is that The producers, the executive producers, the directors were incredibly supportive of the role and the process. They were being incredibly brave by taking on this new role as well because they didn't know what to expect. And something that I will always take away from my time there was just how um, patient and how respectful Chris and the team were about the role. It was a very empowering experience because I, I was invited into all of the conversations. I was able to lead the choreography. I was able to work in collaboration with the director about what they wanted to see, what their vision was, and to help them realize that vision. And it felt incredibly involved, which was really exciting and, you know, at the time, it really revolutionary you know, to be working with the directors. And I know that directors come into working with intimacy coordinators, you know, quite a bit of apprehension. I mean, directors have done intimacy scenes for a very long time, long before we came along. And the sense of being welcomed to the forefront by the directors was really wonderful.
4: What an interesting job. Very, very. And she kind of schooled me on how important her role is and how... They jumped right into the deep end on the very first day of filming the infamous library scene. I heard that. That's wild.
5: I, I don't understand why more people aren't excited about and embracing the use of an intimacy coordinator for the dignity of the actors, but also for the magic of the scenes and for the comfort of everybody there you're not giving up control you are you are promoting a sense of everybody working together to get something done that needs to be done in a way that's really important and right
7: in general one of the things that we do as intimacy coordinators is look at all types of intimacy i think the perspective from a lot of people is that intimacy coordinators are just there for simulated sex and nudity which is True, we are, but we also do so much work with intimacy of a non-sexualized nature. So, for example, you know, best friends, parent-child, brother-sister. You know, we do a lot of work with that as well. And one of the things that's really important to think about is that Those are still very intimate relationships that have to be formed quickly because these actors may have only met, you know, recently. They might not know each other very well. And yet they have to portray a very deep, very personal, very intimate relationship with one another that is
4: not just under the blanket of sex, as it were. Director Tom Verica wholeheartedly
6: agrees. And it's complicated, you know, not only the, you know, the time, the period of which there's expectancy of how one's behavior is, you have that obstacle. You have the very clear obstacle that Chris sets forth very beautifully in the first episode, where it's kind of an arranged deal just for their own, each of their own individual wants. But they're, what we're witnessing and what we're seeing is a falling in love. And that's to have to overcome those obstacles and how you get to that point. I just think it's far more interesting. And I think it's far more what we go through in life, you know. I think of my first meeting with my wife and we just fought like cats and dogs, but it was very clear that we were, you know, we were attracted. We were set up on a blind date and, and we kind of went at each other and our friends were like, well, this was a mistake. This is never going to work. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, we're married. And <laughs> but I think there's that chemistry that just happens and it manifests itself in so many different ways. So the exploration of relationship dynamic is, is laid out just absolutely beautifully in this series.
7: There was a lot going on in Bridgeton. There were, you know, so many different scenes depicting so many different types of intimacies and so many different positionings. And they were all sort of challenging in their own way. They all had to have, you know, research behind them. They all had to have rehearsals. They all had to have, you know different sets of choreography. I mean, I think for a couple of scenes we had, you know, we would present two or three, sometimes even four options for the directors to see. And again, so much of it, which was really great is is actor led, you know? you know, no one knows the characters better than the actors. And if they have an impulse to do something, it's really important to investigate it and to give it the time and space that it needs to see if it develops. And so often it did, because, you know, they they are living and breathing these characters every day. All the actors on the show are so studious. You know, they really are giving everything that they have to immersing themselves in these characters in in this world. And they often came up with such, you know, really beautiful ideas that were really important to explore and to go with.
4: Lizzie, can you describe what being an advocate for actors is like in your role as an intimacy coach? You know,
7: you're an actor, but you still own your own body. You know, you can still decide what you do to it. You're at work. We are creating scenes of intimacy, but we are also making sure that the actors are safe and that, you know, at no point are they, like, violating their own bodies to, to create entertainment. Like, that's not what we want to do here.
1: It must have been interesting for them. You know, I've worked on shows where... When we get to sexy scenes, we kind of just say, and then the actors do whatever they're comfortable with. But with this show, we did have to choreograph exactly what was happening a little bit more when we were writing it because there is so much storytelling in the sex scenes. And so I'm sure the intimacy coordinator had uh, a big job to, to make sure the actors were comfortable, which obviously is still important, but also to hit all those beats.
7: One of the great things about Bridgerton was the amount of rehearsal time that they gave us. And that is not common on every show. And so it was really helpful because at no point then were we ever on set going, oh, what do we do? Because we always knew what we were going to do because we would had so many hours of rehearsals working it all out. We'd try different positions. We'd try different sets of choreography. We'd try different techniques to make sure that we were getting exactly what we wanted. We were working in in collaboration with the directors beforehand so that when we arrived on set, the director knew exactly what we were doing.
4: What were some of the more challenging moments or scenes to choreograph?
7: One of the scenes that I had with Tom, because it was the scene of Daphne's first experience with masturbation, that's a difficult scene to shoot because, you know, Phoebe took on a huge amount there because it's quite difficult to do solo sex scenes. You've got no one to sort of bounce ideas off. You've got no one to connect with. You've got no one to sort of, you know, play around with and sort of see, oh, does this work? And so, you know, we had some, you know, Discussions about what it would look like, and and you know what were the sort of rhythmic beats of this the section, and you know what what were we really trying to show throughout all of this, and and what was going to be the tone of it, and again, it's that it's the going back to that concept of delicacy and dexterity.
6: It was particularly delicate in the sequence that I had, where Daphne is in bed thinking at night, and it sends into the flashback and pulling back from those images where she's exploring and. I knew Phoebe, the actor, was slightly uncomfortable about certain aspects of it. Having been an actor, I know what actors go through.
7: It's incredibly private for Daphne, but it's also exploratory. And it's also something that, you know, it's a concept of discovery, because this is something that she's never done before. She never even knew that she should, or that she should even consider it, or that it even existed. It's just so sort of fascinating to to work with that. And, you know, Tom was so wonderful about it and incredibly helpful and supportive because it's a tough scene to do.
6: I really want to create that environment of, of trust and protection and safety because it is a safety net. We had a wonderful intimacy coordinator. I really make it a collaboration because ultimately, the actor is the one who's the most exposed, they're the ones who are most vulnerable, they're the ones who are performing it. If they're not feeling comfortable, that's going to come across. So I kind of very early on started talking to her about it and about laying ground rules and what her comfort level is. You know, I sometimes play music during a few takes so an actor can kind of loosen up and get into it and have them pick.
7: Oh, Jeff Jo was brilliant at that. We often had like a, a Jeff Gerr's sort of intimate soundtrack. I think he blasted out slow hands. You know, the scene with Daphne and Simon by the lake when they're not wearing very much. And it was, it was, yeah, it was really, really good fun.
1: You know, we had all all the writers in the room had read all the books coming into the room, like all eight of the Bridgerton books. And so what's really fun about her books, I think, is there is this you know, long emotional buildup and buildup and buildup until finally three quarters of the way through the book, the characters finally sleep together and you get a little bit of action. I think this is why they call, you know, these romance novels porn for women, because you get that long buildup and tension.
4: I don't know why I had resubscribed to this idea that the Regency era was sexless.
1: I didn't really know how detailed the sex gets in these books. And You know, when you read these books, there's not much sex for three quarters of the book. And so suddenly they get married and you're reading like his, you know, the language they use is really, it's like something about like her maidenhead and his warrior. And you're like, oh, there's genitalia in this book. We're really getting a playbook play uh so that was surprising and it was something that we all had to get comfortable with working on the show
4: oh my goodness oh, no no no
1: I, I talk about sex all the time at work <laughs> that is too funny I mean there's that scene where they are having sex on like a picnic blanket outside and I'm like this looks it look it's so real <laughs> but you know that's one of the things with Regency characters is there is this desire because they're treated in such a prim and proper way uh, you know to think of them as other but they're human they're horny they, they're they having sex you know their eyes are lighting up when they see a naked man like that was one of the realizations that I think allowed us all to access these characters uh, and write them just as if we were writing a modern day character
4: We'll be right back Welcome back to Bridgerton, the official podcast. We've talked about different levels of intimacy in Bridgerton, advocacy for actors when that intimacy becomes more sexually centered, and now we're getting into more of the story behind Daphne's sexual awakening. So let's just scratch the surface of the female gaze. Here's Shonda Rhimes.
5: You know, on network television, if you could shoot somebody in the face you can show it on network television. But you could not show a man put his hand on a woman's upper flank hip, which I found crazy. So I used to say, like, I want my daughters to grow up to have wonderful, healthy sex lives. I do not want them to grow up to shoot somebody in the face. So I don't understand why we show these things
4: in the opposite ways, as if one's okay and one's not. Let's circle back around to Lizzie Talbot.
7: So Chris Van Dusen was adamant that this was going to be from the female gaze it was something that he was very clear about from the beginning and something that i just really loved and wanted to run with julianne robinson was also one of the first directors i worked with on the show and she was very on board with this idea as well and it took us all the way through the series every single episode we were constantly thinking about okay so this has to be from the female gaze this isn't sort of a boy's story
5: women are sexual creatures the same way men are and you know, most of the time when you're watching a show, it feels like women are being shown through a male gaze very gratuitously.
4: So we're talking about the female gaze, but I had to ask Tom about another very specific kind of gaze. Daphne's longing look at that spoon, which I think has its
6: own Twitter account. It's an awakening. Yeah, it's a, it's innocence and being drawn into this this attraction, not sure what that is. And Chris and I were sitting there and we were talking about those shots cuz it was in the, it was in the script but again articulating visually kind of what he wanted and he was sitting there and I said you know what if Phoebe playing Daphne is watching him and I wanted her to kind of be entranced by just being drawn into him in that moment and slowing that down so we shot it at a slower speed to kind of again put you in her mind it's not overt but you definitely are, are clocked into experiencing what she's experiencing in that moment And I remember as I did slow-mo, I checked with Chris to make sure. And he was like, I love that. I said, is it too much? Is it pushing? And then I went even closer because, again, it's such an intimate moment in a public place. A very specific point of view that each character is having in this point, Daphne's point of view, that we shot even closer. So it was almost like that she was kissing him or being that intimate there. And the distance that they were sitting for the rest of the scene played as is. And it's all very... Traditional how we cover it, but that moment we wanted to pop in because there was like you say a, a, a bit more of, of a heightened moment. It's really kind of are we honoring kind of the point of view of what the character is feeling in that moment and that was a uh, that was one that I thought we succeeded in sort of articulating that moment for Daphne and what she was experiencing.
7: This is something that we haven't seen before. And it's really sort of culminated in the wedding night when you have Daphne lying on the bed. And Daphne is actually uh, covered at that point. You're, You're not seeing any nudity from her. But what you are looking at is Daphne's view of a naked man for the first time, which is very unusual. You don't often see it from that perspective. Normally it's the female lying on the bed and the viewer is like looking at, you know, the image of, of them nude, whereas it's completely different from this perspective. And you see her face. That's what you're looking at, really.
4: It's it's a huge shift. Simon undresses and Daphne's eyes light up, and uh-huh. like, oh, I've never seen one of those before. Daphne would have
1: nothing to compare a naked
4: man's body to. So her reaction to
1: Simon's naked body is very pure. It is just like, this is really the
7: first time she's ever seen anything. It's so different. It's so different. You don't see it from that perspective very often at all. Because, and really like that, I mean, obviously, we've got, you know, Regé's buttocks in the foreground, but in the background, what you're really looking at is, is the face of Daphne. It's that realization that for the first time, she is seeing a very real, very human naked man in front of her, which she would only before have seen in, you know, like, paintings at best.
4: Let's get into more of this with director Julianne Robinson. Julianne Robinson directed the honeymoon sequences that spawned all the sorry, not sorry, I can't look away memes on
2: social. So I directed episode six, one that everybody talks about in terms of the intimacy. <laughs> there was a very specific journey that the character was going on in that whole episode. It was almost the point of the episode. It was to, as, as it was the end of her emotional journey. It was a very difficult episode to direct, actually. And it was something that Chris and I spoke a lot about because it was about something that couldn't be shown or spoken of. So you had to tell the story in really in a, in, a, in a clever way. And so as a director, it was a real challenge. What would happen, we would speak in detail about the contents of the scene and what we were trying to communicate with the scene um with reggae and Phoebe. And then very much like a stunt coordinator, Lizzie would go and work on the scene. Um, meanwhile, and certainly in the early days, I would be doing a dance rehearsal over mm-hmm. here, maybe a stunt rehearsal over here. We had a separate room for the intimacy rehearsals. And that's often how we do dance rehearsals, stunt rehearsals. The expert works with the actors and then the director comes back and I love doing those episodes where it's really this it's it's all about the emotions of the characters it's not about all the big show all the show was in episode one um but for episode six it was almost like um it's like a crucible of emotions you know and that's where I really that's what I really love to do
5: those scenes were telling the story of the show I mean really telling the story of this particular show and what she did was integral to telling that story I mean if she didn't coordinate it the way that she did and make it that like, she was telling the story. And I think that that's important. Bridgerton, I'm so glad you came. Oh, I dare not miss it. Please,
7: come in.
6: Make yourself at home. I would show you around, but most duty calls.
7: So one of the scenes that is really prominent in Bridgerton is when Benedict visits sort of the artist's abode. And uh, he walks in and there is a lot going on. It's sort of a feast for his eyes. Uh, You walk in the room and there are, you know, paintings of nude people all over the place. On the room to his right as he walks past, there are sort of nude dancers covered in very sheer materials. What are you doing here? Beautifully choreographed by, by Jack Murphy. Uh, And then you walk through a little bit more, and there are life models of of people standing in various positions, being painted and admired by lots of different people. You've also got lots of people kissing, and then it culminates at the end with this threesome. It's, it was, there was a lot going on that day, it was not a... We had to sort of film all of those sections individually and, and Cherie, who was directing that, had a lot on her plate that day. And we sort of uh, went from snapshot to snapshot to snapshot, looking at all the, the various different types of, of nudity and really sort of what, what sort of feeling we were going to get from that. Something that's really interesting is that there are so many scenes uh, that you have not seen that were filmed we filmed so many intimate scenes. Um, I can think of potentially at least 10 uh, that did not make the final cut. So there were a lot more than, than, than shown in the in the series. Really? Like what scenes? So a lot of these scenes were portraying um, uh, Simon as quite a lot more scandalous than we see. In the trailer, you'll see him getting out of bed um, with uh, a lady who's, who's lying in the bed. We must have filmed probably at least another two of those with him getting out of bed with various women. And also there was another scene on the dark walk um, where he is meeting various prostitutes and sort of doing various things with them. There was also also a threesome with Simon as well that did not make the final cut. And of course we were doing lots of antics, which meant, you know, rolling off each other. And that's not, you haven't got a huge amount of space to work with. So you had to be very careful about where you start because if you don't start, where you need to, you'll be on the floor because you'll roll off. And so we had to really be very careful about working on regency sides beds because they're just
4: not the same. I didn't even think about that.
7: Yeah, no, neither, until I, until people were falling off beds.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts, Lizzie, before we close out?
7: I think the cast did so well in terms of connection. They did an incredible job at creating this world that even is covered in restraint There is still like those smiles, those laughs, those knowing looks. They played with so many sort of modern flirting tactics, which is all about the eye contact. And I think people have really enjoyed that, particularly in the moment of the pandemic. So, I mean, I have to thank them for, you know, taking the risk in, um, you know, desiring for that role to be part of um, the crew and to have and to have such respect for it.
4: Lizzie, thank you so much for your time. In Chandeland fashion, sex in Bridgerton is centered on story and it's even a window to the backstory to some of the characters that we may not get to see as often as we would like to. The romance, the intimacy in Bridgerton also offers us a window into what the future may hold. There are the big ones like Daphne's a mom now, but then there are the other little storylines that kept us laughing and intrigued like Lord Burbrook and his escapades out in the country. Which brings me to our next episode, which will be about Scandal and Lady Whistledown. But anyway, we hope you enjoyed it. Like, share, subscribe, tell us what you want to hear. And we'll see you next time on Bridgerton, the official podcast. Bridgerton, the official podcast is executive produced by Lauren Homan, Sandy Bailey, Holly Fry, and me, Gabrielle Collins. Our producer is Chris Van Dusen, and our editor is Vincent Dejani. Thanks for listening. Bridgerton, the official podcast, is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts.